Double Deception by Anne Rule. A dentist's wife is dead. It looks like suicide. But the case turns out to be far more sinister. Jennifer Corbin was one of those people almost everybody liked, probably because she liked everybody. Tall, blonde and pretty, the 33-year-old mother thought of others before herself. She did everything she could to keep her small sons happy. Married for nearly nine years, Jen and Bart Corbin appeared to have everything. Two healthy children, a lovely home in Buford, Georgia, a good marriage, admired professions, Bart was a dentist, while Jen taught preschool part-time at a Methodist church. But tiny, thread-like fissures had been creeping through the foundations of their marriage. By the autumn of 2004, a divorce was in the works, and Bart was sleeping in a separate bedroom. At 7.30am on Saturday, December 4, 2004, Steve and Kelly Como, who lived across the street, were startled to hear someone knocking at their front door. They were still in bed. When Steve answered, he looked down to see Dalton Corbin, age seven. His face was red, his cheeks streaked with tears. My mum isn't breathing, Dalton said, standing there in his pyjamas. My daddy shot my mummy. I need you to call 911. Skeptical, Steve Camo nevertheless called emergency services, while Kelly followed Dalton to check on her friend and neighbour. She doubted that Dalton had actually seen what he described. The Corbin's garage door was open, so Kelly hurried inside. She found the door to the kitchen unlocked and headed down the hall towards the master bedroom, with the two boys trailing her. In the bedroom, she could see Jen lying diagonally across the bed. It was an odd position. Feeling a shiver of alarm, Kelly reached out to touch Jen's right shoulder. Could she be sleeping? Kelly pressed harder. There was no reassuring throb of blood coursing there. The flesh was cold. Jen wasn't breathing. Kelly saw a trickle of blood coming from her nose and a few bright red stains on the bedclothes. She glimpsed what looked like a pistol butt poking out from a coverlet. Feeling as if she were in the midst of a nightmare, Kelly backed away, careful not to touch anything. She was way gone, Kelly later told an investigator. Jen had been healthy and vibrant. There was no reason at all for her to have a handgun in her bed. As shocked as Kelly was by what she saw, her thoughts quickly turned to the two little boys. They were Jen's biggest concern always. Now Dalton and Dylan had no mother. Kelly's heart constricted. She ran back to her house, taking the two boys with her, and soon heard the shriek of sirens. Only then did Kelly realise as she tried to comfort the children, that she might have been in danger herself when she entered the house. She realised something else. There had been no sign of Bart. One day, well into her marriage, Jennifer Corbin had asked her sister and close confidant Heather, do you ever wonder what your husband did or who he knew before you met him? Heather answered, no, I know what Doug's life was like. I don't, said Jen, about her own husband's life. She had met Bart in 1995, when he was 31 and she 24, but she knew virtually nothing about his personal or romantic life before then. Whenever she asked him about his past, he wouldn't meet her gaze. It didn't seem to matter at first. Handsome and dark-haired, Bart was tall, 1.9 metres to her 1.8 metre frame, 
which she liked. He was a practising dentist and seemed a most eligible bachelor. They'd met at Barnacle's Oyster Bar in Duluth, Minnesota, where she was working temporarily as a waitress and barmaid while working out what to do with her university degree. Like almost everyone else, Jen was drawn to Bart's wittiness. He could offer a quick and hilarious comment on almost anything. They began dating and Jen was in high spirits. When she introduced him to her parents, Max and Nada Barber, they were pleased, observing that he seemed to care a great deal for their daughter. Max found one thing off-putting. Bart's conversation was full of profanity. A few weeks after Jen and Bart had returned from a romantic getaway in Italy, Jen called her mother and asked if she was sitting down. As Nada remembered it, Jen told her, Bart and I have made a decision and I'm pregnant. She added, we're going to get married and have the baby. Nada expressed delight. Jen said she wanted a big wedding and somehow we did it in six weeks, an outdoor wedding, violins and all of that. The couple were married on September 1, 1996. What neither Jen nor her family knew was that Bart had been seeing a married woman with two children, a woman he'd met through his dental practice. He was also rumoured to be seeing a woman 20 years older than he was. He continued seeing the younger woman all during his marriage. Another thing Jen didn't know, while studying dentistry at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, in Richmond County, Bart had stood out for having a very short fuse. Fellow students said that he was unpredictable, that anything could set him off. One even recalled Bart throwing his own class project against a wall, shattering it. Students also remember an imperious attitude. Bart considered himself superior to others, said one. He was very egotistical. His attitude was a turn-off for a number of women he met, but not for Dolly Hearn, who was a year behind him in dental school. She had exquisite features beautiful eyes and thick black hair and was one of the secrets Bart kept from Jen. Bart and Dolly had dated for about two years but when she tried to end the relationship Bart stalked her, not wanting to accept defeat. Though she contacted the police for help and reached out to others as well, Dolly's life went downhill drastically. On June 6, 1990, it ended abruptly. Dolly was found dead in her apartment of a gunshot wound to the right side of her head. It was an apparent suicide. Bart was questioned in depth. He had a recent history of harassing her, including breaking into her apartment and vandalising her car. Dolly's father, Dr Carlton Hearn, told investigators that Bart Corbin had caused his daughter a great deal of trouble in the last nine months of her life. It would be wise to check him out, said Carlton. He and his wife, Barbara, fully expected that Dolly's cause of death would be changed to malice murder as the probe went on and that Corbin would be charged with the crime. But that was not to be. In 1990, the Richmond County Sheriff's Office had no blood spatter experts. The gun used to shoot Dolly had been moved before any crime scene photos could be taken. Though questions remained, Dolly's case was officially closed leaving suicide as the method of death listed by the sheriff's office and undetermined by the medical examiner. Dolly's parents hired a private investigator to continue looking into her death, and the investigator found a number of people who had heard Bart Corbin talk about hurting Dolly after she broke up with him. On the morning of December 4, 2004, 
two police officers checked out the Corbin home, then waved the emergency teams inside. The teams entered the master bedroom and found it just as Kelly Camo had reported. The woman who lay across the bed had what appeared to be a single gunshot wound behind her right ear. Her hand rested very close to the butt of the 38 calibre revolver. Medics checked her for signs of life. They found none. Patrol Sergeant E.T. Edkin joined his officers and immediately saw that there was nothing they could do for the blonde woman. At first glance, it appeared that she had killed herself. Still, with his years of experience on homicide cases, Edkin questioned whether this was, in fact, a suicide. With crime scene tape, Edkin set up a perimeter around the house and yard and then briefed homicide detective Marcus Head, who took charge, about his suspicion that this death was not what it seemed. Kelly Camo now approached and asked if someone could get clothes for Jen's two boys. They were still in their pyjamas. Officer Michelle Johns went upstairs and grabbed jeans, shirt, shoes and socks from what was obviously the children's bedroom. Glancing into a bedroom on the second floor, she saw the clothes of an adult male hanging neatly in the wardrobe. Crime scene investigators from the Gwinnett County Police Department and forensic staff from the medical examiner's office began arriving. All sudden and or unattended deaths were worked first as homicides, next as possible suicides, third as accidental, and only then as a natural occurrence. Nobody yet knew where the dead woman would fit. A search warrant was being obtained. Detectives were trying to locate relatives of Jennifer Corbin. Neither Kelly Camo nor her husband Steve knew where Bart was. Kelly managed to find a number for his mother, Connie Corbin, who lived nearby. Steve called her at 8.45am. Jennifer's been shot, he said. Connie then called her younger son, Bobby, and told him what had happened. He said that Bart was with him and he would break the awful news. Steve Camo also called Heather, Jen's sister, who lived 40 kilometres away. Heather collapsed in tears, crying out, Jen's dead! We ran through the house collecting our kids, recalled Doug Tierney, Heather's husband. They headed for Max and Nada's house. In the car, I called Bobby back and said, Where's Bart? Is Bart with you? And he said, Yes, he's here, but he's really, really upset. Doug asked if he and Bart would be on their way over to the Corbin house. Bobby avoided answering. Heather kept saying, Go, go, we have to take care of the boys. Doug asked Bobby Corbin again, Are you on your way? There was no response. Doug couldn't believe it. Surely Bart realised that Dalton and Dylan needed their father? Meanwhile, fighting panic and disbelief, Max Barber got in his car and drove as fast as he could to Jen's house. Detectives at the scene kept expecting Jen Corbin's widower to drive up any minute. They assumed he would be crying and upset, but that, like most fathers, he'd pull himself together and race to his children in a crisis. It was eight hours before Corbin called the detectives back. By then he had lawyered up, according to Marcus Head. He agreed to meet at police headquarters to be tested for the presence of gun residue, but he would answer no questions, not even about securing his home. Marcus Head spoke briefly to the young boys, who remained at the Camo's home until their extended family could arrive. Dalton told the detective he had gone to wake his mother to make breakfast, and he had seen blood coming from her mouth. He had also seen the gun. I tried to call 911 from our phone, he said, 
but it didn't work, so I ran to Kelly and Steve's to get help. The boys were questioned again later at police headquarters. When a detective asked Dalton if he wondered why his phone wasn't working, the boy replied, Maybe my dad cut it off. Arriving at his dead daughter's house, Max Barber parked in the driveway for a very long time, waiting to talk to his son-in-law. Heather, who was still at her mother's house, called the emergency services. She was urgently hoping someone could help get Bart to the scene. She had her suspicions. The woman who answered was already convinced that Jen had killed herself, Heather recalled. I kept trying to tell her that Bart did it, and she kept saying, but ma'am, you don't understand what happened. And I knew I did understand and she didn't, said Heather. Jen had confided that she was beginning to be afraid of her husband. Heather recalled that while having coffee together once, the two couples had discussed the TV coverage of the Scott Peterson trial. They had been transfixed by the seeming smugness of Peterson during his trial for the murder of his pregnant wife Lacey and their unborn child. We all talked about it, Heather remembered. I said something about Scott Peterson and how awful it was. And Bart replied, Scott Peterson only got caught because he didn't keep his mouth shut. That conversation stuck with me. Though Jen tried hard over the years to make her deteriorating marriage work, in 2004 she no longer pretended about how empty it was. Bart was emotionally abusive and she wanted to be free of him, if only she could work out a way that wouldn't hurt the boys. Her best friend, Juliet Stiles, knew of her struggles, as did her neighbour and friend Kelly Camo and, of course, Heather. They were all hoping Jen could find some happiness. Bart himself acknowledged that the marriage was unravelling. Jen would not sleep with him, which distressed him. He'd always prided himself on being a good lover. He made pathetic, sometimes desperate calls about the problem to others, including Heather and Doug and his wife's parents. Sometimes Jen talked to her mother about the issues with Bart. One day she told Nada forcefully, He gives me the creeps. He makes my skin crawl. I cannot bear to have him touch me. No longer the self-assured husband who had spent years cheating on her with other women, Bart now clung tightly to Jen. He would not allow a woman to leave him. When Jen brought up the subject of divorce in early October 2004, he seemed to have expected it, but he begged her to stay in the house until after Christmas. For the first time, Bart apologised to Jen, saying he was sorry if he'd hurt her. She agreed to stay over the holidays. That would mean two more months. She didn't know how she was going to manage. Only one thing gave her a bit of joy. Desperately lonely, she'd begun exchanging emails with someone named Chris Hearn, whom she'd met over the internet on a game site. When she told Heather about this virtual friendship, her sister warned her, you have no idea who this really is. But Jen seemed to find comfort in it and exchanged literally hundreds of emails with Chris. The last name of this person, Hearn, meant nothing to Jen because she had never known about Dolly Hearn, Bart's earlier girlfriend. But when Bart found the emails and started reading them, he assumed Jen had stumbled on Dolly's suspicious death. He became enraged. After dinner one night at Heather and Doug's house, during which he barely said a word to anyone, Bart unleashed his anger at Jen during the car journey home. He hit her in the face. Their seven-year-old Dalton cried hysterically, but Dylan somehow managed to sleep through the whole thing. Jen fled to her sister's house and went ahead with divorce plans, 
but on December 3 she told Heather, I have to go home or I'll lose our house. Bart filed his own divorce papers. He was behaving erratically, according to his brother and his friends. He'd tear off in the night in his car. Evidence would also show that he made a secret drive to Alabama, returning with a gun. As Jen's family braced for her funeral, the probe into her death widened. Investigators had been learning about the terrible dissension that marked the last weeks of her life. They spoke with people close to Jen and Bart. They all told stories of fear, upset and a marriage going downhill fast. While the Gwinnett County detectives worked to determine how and why Jennifer Corbin died, Richmond County Sheriff's detectives Scott Peebles and Dwayne Piper carried out a parallel probe into Dolly Hearn's death, now 14 years in the past. Atlanta-area media that were keeping abreast of the Jen Corbin case had quickly reported information about Dolly Hearn. Detectives in both jurisdictions noted similarities and started connecting the dots. The public also knew that young Dalton Corbin had blurted out that his father had shot his mother, though District Attorney Danny Porter of Gwinnett County didn't feel that the seven-year-old's certainty would be enough yet to order an affidavit for an arrest warrant. Despite the circumstantial evidence in Jen's death, there was still no proof of murder. The gun found in her bed had been wiped clean of any fingerprints, as had the murder weapon in Dolly Hearn's case. Two days before Jen's funeral, Kevin Vincent, an investigator with the district attorney, drove to Bart Corbin's dental surgery to search for information. It was closed. A sign said there had been a death in the family. A lawyer whose office was next door told Vincent that he'd last spoken to Bart on Friday, December 3. The lawyer said that Bart occasionally bartered dental work for legal advice. The lawyer knew from personal experience that Corbin had a volatile temperament and he often heard Bart shouting at his staff right through the walls. The lawyer said that Bart had asked him nervously on the afternoon before his wife was shot about which of them would be legally responsible for paying the mortgage on their house if he and his wife divorced. I told him that it would be the one of you who could most afford to pay. That would be Bart, who earned more as a dentist than Jen did as a teacher. The lawyer observed that Bart had been acting strangely that afternoon. He said to me, Everyone told me not to marry her. I should have listened, but it will all be over soon. At the time, the lawyer thought that Bart was speaking about the upcoming divorce. Investigators made door-to-door visits to the Corbin's closest neighbours. Bart's explosions of temper were well known. A nearby neighbour said that on one occasion he had even felt it necessary to step in to protect Dalton from Bart's anger. Investigators also learnt that even though he'd filed for divorce, Bart seemed consumed with pain and rage in the days before his wife died. If they needed to find someone with a motive for murder, Bart was a likely candidate. He'd been obsessed with getting Jen back. Still, he refused to talk. He continued going to his dental clinic and had lunch most days with the married woman rumoured to be romantically involved with him. Deputies and investigators were tracking him. In Augusta, Scott Peebles and District Attorney Danny Craig were especially interested in the 1990 statements of Dr Eric Rader, who had been Bart's office mate in dental college. Rader said that during 1990, Bart Corbin confessed to him that he had come close to killing Dolly Hearn. He said he waited in the parking lot of Dolly's apartment, Rader recalled in a statement. He had a gun. He told me he was planning to shoot her. 
Now, in 2004, Peebles located Raider in his clinic near Atlanta. Did he remember making that statement back in 1990? Yes, Raider replied. I remember distinctly that Bart Corbin told me that. A grand jury heard the evidence, including how Corbin had confided to a friend that he'd staged the perfect murder. By December 22, an arrest warrant charging Bart Corbin with murder was issued by Richmond County. Notified there might be an indictment, Gwinnett County police officers hoped to arrest Corbin at his office, a relatively private venue. No one knew how this man, given to violent rages, would react. On that Wednesday morning, while Bart saw patients, a four-man surveillance team waited outside. When the indictment came through, they were told to stand by. About ten minutes to noon, Bart and the woman he was seeing left the dental clinic together and walked towards a white car. Bart slipped into the passenger seat and the woman began driving. As she stopped in traffic, officers moved in. They surrounded the vehicle, opened the passenger door and shouted to Bart to raise his hands. He put up no struggle as he was removed from the car and handcuffed. Bart was surprised when he learned he was under arrest on a warrant, not out of Gwinnett County, but from Richmond County. The grand jury there had handed down a sealed warrant charging him with felony and malice murder in the death of Dolly Hearn. Then, on January 5, 2005, a grand jury indictment came down in Gwinnett County. After all the physical and circumstantial evidence had been reviewed, including a trail of mobile phone tower hits that showed Corbin had been near his house at 2am, about the time his wife was determined to have died, but Corbin was charged with one count of malice murder one count of felony murder, and one count of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. If found guilty of both Jen's and Dolly's murders, Bart Corbin could be sentenced to death. The two young Corbin boys hadn't seen or heard anything. They had been upstairs sleeping at the time of their mother's death. Investigators knew where the gun used to kill Dolly Hearn had come from. Her father had given it to her for her own protection. Bart Corbin had been in Dolly's apartment when she died, according to the evidence, and that gun had killed her. But where had the murder weapon in Jen's case come from? As the dates for the two trials approached, Danny Porter's chief investigator, Jack Burnett, and his men Mike Pearson and Russ Halcombe, used the latest in forensic technology to link the thirty-eight caliber revolver that killed Jen to an old friend of Bart's in Alabama. Richard Wilson sat nervously in the interview room, facing the prosecutor's teams from Georgia. He lived in Troy, Alabama. Yes, he said, he had given Bart the thirty-eight revolver. Bart had called him and said that Jen was fooling around on him and that he was frightened he might be in danger. He needed a gun to protect himself, Wilson said. He asked me if I had one, and I did, so he came here to get it. When the gun, the one taken from Jen's bedroom, was handed to Richard Wilson, he studied it and said... That certainly looks like it. On September 15, 2006, nearly two years after Jen died, Heather and Doug Tierney drove to the Gwinnett County Justice Centre in Lawrenceville. The gallery was packed with the two women's families. Along with investigators from Gwinnett and Richmond counties, the district attorneys and their staffs. The families had agreed that they could accept a plea bargain as long as Corbin admitted guilt. Bart Corbin walked in between his lawyers, dressed in a suit. His dark eyes burnt holes in his pale face. 
He rose to face Danny Porter and stared at him. Porter stared back, then described the morning of December 4, 2004, and how a seven-year-old boy awoke to find his mother dead. Did you, in fact, commit the crime of malice murder? Porter asked. Corbin's forehead tightened. Yes, he answered. It didn't seem fair that he wasn't required to say anything more. Only Danny Porter and Judge Michael Clark had a front view of Corbin's face as he stood there. There was no reaction, Porter recalled later. It was like looking into the eyes of a shark. Then Danny Craig, the district attorney from Richmond County, rose to face Corbin. Do you further admit that you committed the murder of Dolly Hearn on June 6, 1990? Yes, said Corbin. He was sentenced to two terms of life in prison. The sentences are running concurrently, with credit given for the 19 and a half months Corbin spent in jail awaiting trial. He will be eligible for parole consideration in 14 years, but it's hardly likely he'll get out so soon. Danny Porter said, I don't think Bart Corbin will ever see the outside world again. He won't have a realistic chance of parole for 28 years. If he should be paroled at that time, he'll be in his 70s. Dalton and Dylan Corbin, now 10 and 8, live with their aunt and uncle, Heather and Doug Tierney, in a house filled with cousins, sunshine, paintings, music and dogs and cats. They often call Heather Aunt Mummy. Heather breaks into tears whenever she speaks of Jen. Dalton is extremely bright and still carries within him a fear of his father. Dylan is a far less intense child. He was younger when his mother was shot. Neither of the boys has asked to visit their father in prison. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.